0: <laughs> okay.
1: I think we're good. Action? Action. Active. Thank you. So um, so the part of human nature that I'd like to talk about today um, is that part of our human nature that uh, is relevant to our interactions with others. And there's been a f- phenomenal amount of work taking place uh, in the last 10 years, certainly, and even in the last year or two, uh, that seeks to understand how we interact with each other and how we assemble ourselves Um, into social networks. And if you think about it, humans are extremely unusual as a species in that we form long-term, non-reproductive unions to other members of our species. Namely, we have friends. Why do we do this? Why do we have friends? It's, It's not hard to construct an argument as to why we would have sex with other people. But it's rather more difficult to construct an argument as to why we would befriend other people. And yet we and very few other species do this thing. So I'd like to problematize that. I'd like to problematize friendship first. Second, not only do we have friends, but we prefer the company of people we resemble. And there's an enormous literature on sort of in-group bias and why this might be the case. And a lot of this literature, to my eye, takes the form of what I would regard to be a tautological explanation. Why do we prefer the company of people we resemble? Because we're more comfortable when we are with people we resemble. Why are we more comfortable when we're hanging out with people we resemble? Because they resemble us. And I'd actually like to try to to find a deeper explanation for why we befriend other individuals, why we assemble ourselves into networks with what it turns out to be very fundamental, reproducible topologies, structures, and why we prefer uh, the company of people we resemble. And in fact, the ubiquity and necessity of social interactions carries with it a suite of other phenomena, uh, like cooperation, which is very deeply and fundamentally important, sensing the ability to see what's happening in others, communication, social learning, epidemics, violence, all of these phenomena arise not so much within individuals, but rather at the interstices between individuals. They're not so much nodal phenomena having to do with the nodes on the networks, but edge phenomena, phenomena that have to do with the connections between uh, the individuals. And In fact, I'd like to think that the focus on networks calls into question some very old ideas um, about human nature. And actually, I think you can, and and about what the state of nature really is for human beings. And Joe Henrich, uh, in an interview he did for EDGE a couple of years ago, had a very nice sort of pithy summary of this. He says, why do we think even, why do we see market economies as all about competition for advantage? Actually, you can just rethink the existence of market economies as all about cooperation. Why do we have to see them as being competitive rather than as cooperative Enterprises, and I think actually we can shift our perspective on lots of things when we think about people as being nodes on a graph, as being connected to other people. And this shift in focus might, in fact, prompt us to begin to think about not the individuals themselves, but between the ties between them. And this calls to mind an analogy. I don't know; some of you may already know this: of um, of uh, streets in the United States and in European countries. So streets have names in our country. And uh, and then the houses on the streets are numbered uh, numerically and linearly uh, as you move along the street. And the blocks between the streets don't have names or numbers and are seen as the things that are between the streets, and we don't pay much attention to them. But if you go to Japan, it's the blocks that are numbered. The blocks have names. And the houses on the blocks are numbered in the order in which they were built, not numerically or linearly in any kind of systematic way. And if you ask the Japanese what... What's going on with the streets? They say the streets are the spaces between the blocks. They don't pay attention to those. So I think you can even begin to think about human beings in this fashion. We're so interested in understanding human beings that we lose sight of the connections between them. And just like we can efface the individual to some extent, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a strong argument that we should do this, but I have what I would regard to be a weak argument why it's beneficial or useful as a heuristic to do this, Just like we can begin to efface individuals by thinking about the selfish genes within them, we can also begin to efface individuals by thinking about the connections outside them. So the question I'm asking myself lately is, what would a social science of connections rather than a social science of individuals look like? What would it mean to take connections as the focus of inquiry and think about the individuals as actually the spaces between the connections who are not so important? And then we begin to think about all the dyadic interactions between individuals which are themselves natural phenomena, just like we are. Like, I'm an object of the natural world, but so are my connections between me and all the other people's, uh, objects of the natural world, which warrant an explanation and a kind of deep and profound, in my judgment, um, uh, study. And in fact, this would have a variety of conceptual and uh, methodologic problems. And some people would say that this is a really kind of horrible perspective, that it obliterates our individuality, that it's dehumanizing and so forth. But I would, I would sort of retort to that by saying, what makes us think that the ties between us are any less important or worthy of attention than, uh, than the individuals uh, themselves? So one of the things that we've been doing is, is we've been asking ourselves, what's the purpose? I mean, what is the, um, the reason that we form these ties? What's the function of these edges and these uh, connections uh, between us? And one of the things that's very interesting to us is that these, these edges between individuals, these networks that we form have properties that are not reducible to the individuals. They, are, they offer us a kind of an understanding of emergence, a new kind of emergent phenomena. And these properties, while they are properties of groups, actually, as it turns out, have implications for individuals. So let me give you an example. Let's say, and this is very visual, and I am given this format. I'm not supposed to use visual, because I'm going to cheat and use one slide in a moment. Uh, the, um, uh, let's say you had 1,000 people, and on average, they each had five connections, so you had 5,000 ties between them. And mathematically, you could construct a number of ways in which you could organize these networks. You could have a random network where people are jumbled together. You could have a big ring network. Uh, You could have a kind of scale-free network. Uh, You could have the kind of network that we humans actually make, which has a variety of properties. It turns out that if you were to organize this, if you were designing the network from mathematical first principles so as the network to be the most resistant to pathogens taking root within them, so you say, I want to organize these people in such a fashion that this group, when so organized, resists epidemics. Whereas if they had been organized some other way, these same people, who otherwise were identical, had the same immune systems, the same biology, this group no longer resisted epidemics so well. If you wanted to give the group the epidemic resistance property, the way you would organize the people is to give them a property in network science known as degree assortativity. You would make popular people befriend popular people, and unpopular people befriend unpopular people. You could give them this property, would make the network as a whole resistant to germs being able to uh, take in roads. And I can cultivate this intuition by asking you to think about the air- airport network in this country. The airport network is degree disassortative. High- Chicago is connected to lots of small airports, where in the small airports you can't fly from one to the other, are disconnected from each other. Whereas people don't have that property. Popular people befriend popular people and unpopular unpopular. Now think about which of those two networks, if you were a bioterrorist and you wanted to seed a germ in, which network would the germ spread more rapidly? In the airport network, right? It goes, if you start any random node, like an isolated small town, it will go to Chicago and in the next hop will reach the whole nation. But if you had the hubs and the spokes and the and the, and the peripheral airports uh, connected to each other, it would be relatively more impervious to an, a pathogen spreading. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that of all the kinds of ways human beings could organize themselves into networks, that's what we do. We evince degree assortativity, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we do that. We assemble ourselves into groups. The group now has this property, this germ resistance property, which is a property of the group, but which, as it turns out, also benefits and affects us. Now, being a member of that group we are less likely to uh, acquire pathogens. And this sets the stage for a set of ideas that we and others have been exploring that shed light on multi-level selection and other kinds of contentious ideas uh, in the biological and the social sciences. And we've had, we have a number of fellow travelers on this road. Uh, Laszlo Barabasi, Dirk Helbing, Tubian Cosmides, Franz De Waal, Nowak, Rand Santos that's here. People working on these related areas of uh, interactions between animals or people and and, uh, and what this means. In fact, David uh, Rand and uh, Josh Green and Martin Nowak just had a nice paper. Uh, this past year, I was asked to sort of highlight some papers looking at whether um, you can use time to response as a kind of heuristic for understanding are people sort of intuitive cooperators and rationally selfish, or are, do they exercise rational self control uh, over a kind of instinctive greed? And the, our, the data they present in that paper, to my eye, is quite compelling that we are intuitively wired uh, to cooperate. And James and I published a paper the last year as well, also in Nature, where we uh, had the following idea. We said, well, what we would love to do is if the claim is that there's something deep and fundamental about human social networks and the structure of networks, we would love to be able to go back 10,000 years to the Pleistocene and look at how humans, what kind of networks did they assemble themselves into before we invented agriculture and cities and communication and so forth. And we did the next best thing to that, which is to map the social networks of the Hadza hunter-gatherers. There's only about 1,000 of them left. Only about 500 of them still live in the traditional way. They are a natural fertility population. They have no material possessions to speak of. They sleep under the stars. And when we map their social networks, their networks look just like ours. So despite all of modern technology, telecommunications, the Internet, and everything else, the structural features of their networks are indistinguishable from the structural features of our networks. Suggesting to my eye again, that there's something very fundamental not just about the structure of our bodies and our minds, but the structure of our societies. So, so this is some of the work that's been going on uh, in a number of fronts the last uh, few years, trying to understand uh, social interactions, uh, social networks and the kind of constituent elements of that cooperation and the like. Uh, but then that leads to what I like to call the so what question. So what if we can understand the structure and function of networks? What can we do with this knowledge? Not necessarily to make the world better, John, but actually to intervene in the world uh, in some way. And if you think about it, that's also one of the tests of science. I mean, as a scientist, can you actually understand the natural world well enough that you can actually seize control of the natural world in some way and make it obey obey certain fundamental uh, rules? So so I'm going to close with uh, some summaries of a few experiments that have taken place over the last couple of years uh, and then a kind of broader set of uh, kind of a bigger idea uh, as a final point. So let me just summarize a few pieces of work that are going on in my field that I think are are very cool uh, at the moment. So the two broad categories of work. One category of work is can we manipulate um, the structure, the topology of the network? Can we take control of the nature of the ties between people and drive the network to desired states? and The second is, can we manipulate not the connection, but the contagion within the network? Given a structure of a network, how can we seed the network? How can we introduce information strategically within locations that make the group behave in desirable or ways that we specify? So can we show that we've mastered, uh, understood this world well enough that we can actually uh, intervene in it? So one experiment that was done uh, by a former postdoc of mine that was published a couple of years ago now, uh, is this and I have to show you this image. So, um, so this, is an experiment of, this is an experimentally constructed networks. There are two networks in this image. I don't know if you can see it. I was, there's just no way you could describe uh, these, these two networks. Both of these networks have 128 people in them. and In both of these networks, each person is connected to exactly six other people. Okay? So, if you talk to the human beings in these networks, and you ask them, how many friends do you have? They would say, I have six friends. And every one of them in both of these worlds would say, I have six friends. They cannot tell the difference between the two worlds which they inhabit. Okay? Now I'm going to ask you, suppose I'm going to infect the person, the yellow dot that's up here, with a germ. In which of these two worlds do you think the germ would spread more rapidly and more completely throughout the network? From the point of view of the individual, there's no way of telling what world they're in. But from the point of view of us with this God's eye view, we should have an intuition in which of these two worlds is the germ more likely to spread. And the answer is the germ on the left. I'm sorry, the network on the left. This random assembly, ping, 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 the next step, the, the germ will spread from the yellow dot to the six red dots and then from there to the others. And you'll flush through the system. You'll get a blooming of the information spreading or a germ spreading or whatever. And this is things that spread by so-called simple contagion. Now I'm going to ask you something different and more difficult. Imagine now what is to spread within the network is not germs or information, but, for example, a behavior. For example, smoking cessation or cooperation, something more complex. It turns out that the world on the right is the world that is more conducive to the spread of such phenomena. So the topology of the network, which can be seen from above, is what's relevant to whether or not these group-level properties uh, can emerge and be sustained. So this was an experiment that was done to show that. We did an experiment, and I won't show you any more images. We did an experiment in our lab where we um, recruited over 2,000 people online and we brought them into these virtual worlds uh, and the subjects played a public goods game with the uh, people near them, a kind of cooperative game with those around them who they were randomly assigned. Uh, and then we controlled in that world whether or not people could rewire their networks so in, 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 in the amount that they could rewire them, by which we meant not only can you, if you defect from me, I can reciprocate by defecting, Or if you cooperate, I can reciprocate by cooperating. But we gave me another tool which is that I could cut the ties or form ties to people. So I could form ties to cooperators and cut ties to defectors. And then we manipulated the viscosity with which that could be done. And what we found was is that actually we could control the amount of cooperation that emerged in this group of people by specifying the rules of interaction. If we allowed people to rewire their ties just the right amount, then cooperation in the group would appear. Above and beyond and independent of the individuals themselves and their own tendencies. So we can elicit from the group a property, namely cooperation, by controlling the nature of interaction. Second experiment. A number of other experiments have been done with uh, contagion phenomena. So given a structure of human interactions in an African village, in a trading floor, uh, in uh, Wall Street, uh, in schools in the United States, uh, whatever the setting is, Can you strategically introduce information in such a fashion that you can get people to behave in particular ways? It was just a paper published by Matt Jackson and Nessar Duflo a couple of weeks ago in science looking at microfinance. So if you want to get the adoption of microfinance in a setting in India, who do you in the villages, who do you target so that if you get them to use the microfinance, you get the most spillover and the most rapid diffusion of innovation? Another uh, nice paper that was done by my colleague James Fowler, and all of the work that I've done that I'm describing today, virtually all of it, has been done jointly with James. Uh, James had a beautiful paper a year ago as well, in the last year in Nature, uh, where they randomly assigned 61 million people online to a voting intervention. And were able to show that actually showing people a very seemingly trivial stimulus drove not only the individuals themselves to be more likely to vote, but their friends to be more likely to vote and their friends' friends to be more likely to vote. So we showed a spread of civic mindedness to two degrees of separation within this massive experiment done with 61 million people. In fact, it's estimated that an extra 300,000 people turned out to vote on that election because of James's experiment. Actually, our democracy was improved because of the scientists actually doing their work in that particular occasion. There's been some other nice work on product adoption using experiments online. How can we uh, get people to adopt products? And we're in the field right now doing some experiments in Honduras where we've mapped the villages of 32, mapped the networks of 32 highland villages in Honduras. And we're trying to see if we can only reach 5% of the people, which 5% should we reach so that we get the whole village to change its mind about clean water and nutrition uh, outcomes? And we're randomly assigning the villages to different targeting algorithms. In some villages, we pick 5 percent of the people at random. In other villages, we pick them according to one targeting algorithm, and still another according to another targeting algorithm. And we have very promising results uh, from uh, this study. Um, there's also a sense in which you can now use networks, and there's been some nice work done in the last year, so summarizing my field, whereas now instead of introducing information into the system, you think about networks as kinds of sensors, extracting information from the system. So for example, If you think about it, uh, just a moment ago, we cultivated the intuition that if you target information to particular individuals, they're going to be more spready, more willing to, able to spread whatever it is that's happening in the network. Now, let me ask you to think about this since I can't use slides. Imagine a network... Uh, And so they're ties, they're little nodes and they're ties between them. And most of you probably have an image that in the middle there's a kind of jumble, like Christmas tree lights, when you open them up after a year and there's a thick knot in the middle and are these little tendrils that spread out to the edges. That's what a network kind of looks like. And imagine that I could ask you, you could be a person in the middle of that and have four friends, or you could be a person on the edge of that and have four friends. Now a deadly germ is spreading through the network. Who would you rather be, the person in the middle or the person on the edge? person on the edge. You have the intuition that the person in the middle is going to be on more paths through the system. You can formalize this mathematically and is going to be more likely to get whatever's spreading through the system. This very simple idea was an idea that we exploited by recognizing that if we could identify who were central people in networks and passively monitor them, we would have an early warning system for epidemics. So the the epidemic curve is a classic S-shaped curve that goes up like this. That S-shaped curve should be shifted to the left in central individuals compared to random individuals within the system. So if we can find ways of identifying central people using big data or other techniques and monitor them passively or actively, when we observe a spike in central people it means that an epidemic is about to strike the population. This can also be done with economic information or any kind of information that spreads through the system. We were able to show that this works uh, with an outbreak of H1N1 flu a couple of years ago now. and In the last year we also showed that it works on Twitter. I know nine days before anyone else James and I know, nine days before anyone else, what's going to be popular on Twitter uh, nine days from now? Because we see it spiking in the individuals that are particular topological locations within the network. So to sum up, to close, this new work that has been taking place over the last year or two uh, in my field, which is uh, network studies and study of social psychology relevant to interactions and in sociology, uh, not all of sociology or all of social psychology, it's my little niche, look where I sit, uh, and in the biology of these types of things, uh, has a number of features. Uh, first, these, this work is increasingly experimental uh, in nature. So more and more um, people are doing experiments. This, this move to experimentation is a kind of rediscovery of a tradition of experimentation in the social sciences. We always did experiments, but beginning in the 1950s, I think, we became partly besotted with regression models. Psychology is a bit of an exception because they kind of consistently have done experiments, but I think we're moving back to field experiments in uh, in broader swaths of the social sciences, and this is being abetted in part by the development of the internet and online experimentation. So the big data revolution intersects with the experimental revolution by making it easier for us to do experiments. So this new work reflects four things: first, they're experimental; second, that it's uh, exploiting online and internet technology; third. I think that there's, to my eye at least, an increasing desire to try to find things that are deep and fundamental about our humanity. I think the best social science now that is being done seeks to go kind of to a deeper and more fundamental level uh, to try to explain human behavior, at least when it comes to human interactions. And fourth, they're involving interventions. So I think that if you want to construct a kind of almost Popperian sort of theory of science the ability to actually, you know, we observe the system, we have a hypothesis about the system, we uh, do experiments about the system and conclude it, and now we actually manipulate the system, we introduce genes, we excise the genes, we do experiments in particular ways, uh, shows a kind of level of control or understanding that I think is is very commendable. So, collective behavior has always captivated people's interests, um, but I think in the last couple of years we've been making phenomenal progress in understanding what I would regard to be, well, for me at least, that which is the key aspect of our human nature, which is our interactions with others. Thank you. you mentioned uh, point three. Would you repeat that? Uh, something that I think transcends individuals, something that's very deep and fundamental, but that transcends you individuals. You mentioned humanistic or something. Say that again. Did you mention humanism or? I didn't mention humanism. No, No, but you're asking... You were imputing some kind of goodness. No, I'm avoiding that, because those were my marching orders from you, John. (laughs) (laughs) I I almost said... There's this sense of all the discourse about networks and big data that it means good. Uh, And and, Stephen Pinker, notwithstanding... If you look at what's going on in Syria or yeah, yeah, yeah. any place else, uh, the Internet hasn't changed much in terms of human nature. Yeah, so, so I think I know what you're talking about. So I think like, like any technology, atomic power, um, guns, you know, it can be deployed for good or for evil. So I've been <clears> highlighting or imagining some ways in which a better understanding of social interactions can be exploited for good, but, but it can also clearly be exploited for bad. Now, this bad could be getting people to buy products they don't need, it could be uh, whipping up political fanaticism. Actually, if you understand networks, you are, can be much more effective uh, at, um, at fostering Nazism. Actually, there's a way in which you can, you can think of extreme political ideology and how it takes root in populations, how you would go about structuring populations precisely to reinforce these kind of extreme ideologies. So there are all kinds of bad things that you can use the same technology for, um, and I am not unmindful of that. But, I mean, the things we're trying to do, I would think... We're trying to increase cooperation and make people healthier and increase economic development in the developing world and you know everything else that Sendel and everyone else here is trying to do. So, yeah, Lori.
2: So I can't help but ask the psychologist question, which is I think a chicken and egg question, which yeah. I'll illustrate with chickens. So imagine you you ran your network analyses on chickens. I don't know what chicken networks look like. Someone's though. done
1: that, by the way, but really? go on. No? but I bet
2: they don't. They don't look like humans, right? No, they don't. And so, elephants and of course, too. Oh, and, and I think the primate, the stuff we're getting out of Kyle yes. Santiago suggests it looks really notey too. Um, but the question is that, well, why is that, right? And so you started by talking about this fact that humans might have networks that are unique or unique to like more closely related primates or whatever, but then why at the psychological level could that be? Is there something about human cognition or human cognitive mechanisms that allows us to form those networks and not other species? Um, and if so then yeah, that so seems to mean that the individual, at least what's going on in the individual's yeah. head, shapes so
1: this. I think it's fascinating. So leaving aside the eusocial insects and clonal species where people the, interact- people, the interactions between the individuals are necessarily amongst kin. So we're talking about non-kin relations. So we've got primates, including us, elephants, cetaceans. What's amazing to me is when the, what's known about the network mapping of these individuals, of these species, is that those networks look in- incredibly similar. So elephant networks and primate networks and, and dolphin networks look very much like ours. To me, this begs like what I think is a really interesting question, which is maybe there's only one way to be social. I mean, why, why would that be the case in the natural world, that whenever we go looking at social species, leaving aside the eusocial insects, uh, would they have this, evince these network properties? Because the last common ancestor between us and whales is 60 million years ago. So the whales clearly have uh, you know, evolved this independently, and with elephants about the same. So they're converging, I think, by convergent evolution on a similar solution, not about a bodily phenotype, but what I would call, and James and I are calling, an exophenotype. So think about this. Why is it that, why is it that uh, if a spider evolves bigger mouth parts to capture more prey, we think of that as a kind of evolutionary adaptation? But if a spider evolves the construction of a more elaborate web that basically achieves the same thing, we don't necessarily think of that as a phenotype. Well, actually, we should. So let's start thinking of it as a phenotype. Spider morphology is a phenotype. If that's true, by a few short leaps, I could get you to believing that social network construction is a phenotype. My manipulation of the social world to construct a network around me, I would argue, is no different than the spider's manipulation of the physical world to construct a spider web around it. So, so first, second, picking up on your point, what's amazing to me is that dragging with it, or not necessarily dragging with it, walking along with network structure are all these other things. For example, mirror self-recognition. So dolphins have mirror self-recognition, primates clearly do, elephants have mirror self-recognition, cooperation, self-identity, and other identity. So if you're going to cooperate and form networks with non-kin, you have to be able to know, oh, this is June, and that's Sendel, and that's Danny. You have to know them who they are from moment to moment. And these other animals also do that. So there's this suite of features that seems to be necessary and go together for the construction of social worlds. And
2: then, just to follow up, then that raises the chicken in. So do you have to be the kind of cognitive creature who can do X, Y, and Z, and then you're like, oh, I'll talk to June, and then, the network forms. Or does the network form, and that creates this crazy selection pressure to, like, have these mechanisms to do. I
1: think it's both. I think what's happening is... I think that I, I think that our social life and our biological heritage are in a conversation across eons. So think about this. Imagine a beaver. A beaver, for whatever reason, is a chance mutation that makes its behavior different so it constructs a bigger dam. And now when the beaver constructs a bigger dam, you get a bigger flood behind the dam. And so now across time, those beavers ideally to exploit the greater linear perimeter of the of the pond that they've created, which gives them more foraging opportunities, needs bigger lungs. So the beaver now has to, because of the behavioral change, has to start evolving bigger lungs to be able to be underwater more to explore this perimeter or bigger flippers or whatever beavers need to be effective, okay? Well, I think humans are like that, actually. I think we have little things where we begin reworking the world, the social world around us. I think that creates selection pressures on our brains and our cognition, makes us social. The more social, cooperative, uh, mirror self-recognition, all that other stuff we do the more able we are to create these webs around us, and it feeds back on itself. But what's so interesting to me and James about um, about the social world is that unlike the physical or the biological world, which God gave us, you know, is material, is around us, we create the social world. So we create the selection pressure that then feeds back and contorts our minds and contorts our bodies. That's what I think is happening. Yeah, uh, James.
2: So, you were talking about your interest in contagion, and I know earlier we talked a little bit about emotional contagion. And I'm just wondering, you know, to what extent do you think this, the spreading of this phenomena, is going to vary depending on the type of network we're talking about? Whether it's specifically, I think, of, you know, offline, more in vivo interaction, and now with, you know, the social media networks growing and ever increasing. And the, the degree to which you're expressing emotions in these two domains is radically different.
1: So, one of our arguments has been that emotions, emotional contagion in which we're very interested has to, there has to be some relationship at stake. So my emotional response to my child in pain or my colleague in pain, even depending on the colleague, uh, is very different than my emotional response to a stranger in pain. Now, I still have empathy and I like to believe in sympathy for the stranger in pain, but there's clearly something about it. Plus, it's also different to see the person in pain than to read about the person in pain. So, A, the nature of the social tie, B, uh, the um, the visibility are crucially important. However, I think that you can transmit emotional states to a lesser extent, but still uh, through online interactions. Like if you get a sad letter from your sister, you're going to feel sad about it, even though it's a printed word and not, not quite as powerful as seeing your sister. Uh, and we have an unpublished paper, which I think I can talk about very briefly, which we... We exploited uh, weather variation as an instrument. So we looked at all the residents of New York City. And if it rains in New York City, you, with Facebook mapping of the whole country, uh, their, fa- their Facebook friends in cities outside of New York is affected by the weather in New York City, two degrees removed. And so we can, and we did this, I won't go into all the details, but we did this in the kind of metrically proper way. And so we can discern in, in a kind of quasi-natural experiment, to the extent that you believe the literature that weather affects people's moods, which there is a nice cottage literature on this, Um, you can use that as a kind of what's known as an instrument to kind of identify these effects in online, uh, between online uh, friendships.
0: Yes, question. So, (coughs) like all models, there's a certain degree to which you're abstracting, and that's a sort of a necessary feature of modeling, right? You're going to take some stuff out. But, I mean, and I think you've highlighted something that's right about psychology, which is that we don't spend as much time thinking about what friendship is for, there's been some assumptions about it being for exchange and so on, and you have a different proposal. But, um, so just to connect it up to some stuff that we've been thinking about, I and mean, one thing that seems to be important in our data about friendship is that the nodes aren't equally weighted. And so the amount of time yes. and the degree to which I'm close to my first friend is really different from my fourth and fifth friend. And so what, what I'm really curious about is First of all, as a technical matter, how easy it is to build things like that into the model. Because my just for the record, my suspicion is it's going to be really important, and it might even change your pathogen dynamics. Yes. Because if I spend a lot of time with. Yes, NGa, for sure. Right. It's, yeah. So, um, as a psychological matter, that seems like a reality which would be very cool to build into these sorts of things. And again, as an empirical matter, uh, we're finding that there's a relatively nice function that one can use to map these things. So, you know, is is the future of this kind of yes. work weighted 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 edges? Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, so everyone. Yeah, so everyone's moving to well, not everyone. I mean, there's a big move to weighted graphs, exactly for the reason you're describing. So every tie can get a weight now. So you can describe not just the uh, the nodes. In fact, ties can become just as complicated as people. How long has the tie been lasting? How intimate is the tie? How frequent do you see the person? What what's the vector? Does do I I say you're my friend or you say I'm your friend? And so you can begin to have all kinds of detail uh, which are highly relevant. And you can so weight the ties and use a variety of methods which allow you to take advantage and, and It falls mostly as you would predict, right? So just as you suggested, people with whom I spend a lot of time are more important pass through the network when it comes to germs, for example. Thank you. Thank you so much.